Hello, listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, the podcast program of the Black and African Diaspora Forum of Monmouth University. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have Professor Claude Taylor, Director for Academic Transition and Inclusion, and Aaron Fleming, Director of Production Services at Monmouth University. Welcome to the show. Hi, Hetty. Thank you. Hi. Dr. Williams, thank you for having us. Well, thank you both for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me to discuss this uh, exciting film project on African Americans and the Great Migration to Asbury Park. Um, It's such an important conversation and the history of the African diaspora. Uh, Asbury Park has played a central role in many significant events in the history of African Americans, including the Great Migration, the rise of segregation, and the Civil Rights Movement. So today what we'll do is discuss this film project by Aaron and featuring Claude, Asbury Park, and the Great Migration. First, let's start with your your uh, professional research and teaching backgrounds. Let's start with you, Erin. So I have sort of a diverse background. I did attend film school, and when I got out, I worked in the corporate industrial landscape. And I, I know that sounds sort of bland, but um, I worked for an international insurance company. So we had to devise storytelling for everything from you know, how to transport your artwork to um, how to recover from natural disaster. Um, I did stories on September 11th and also Hurricane Katrina. But then on the other side of my experience, I did a lot of personal projects in ethnographic research and documentary work. And I would go into developing countries and live within communities and tell stories that were necessary, whether they be orphan projects or health communication. And so, you know, I, those, bringing those two pieces together, I then arrived at Mammoth and helped to create this department called Production Services, which is experiential learning for students in the field. We have clients and we create stories and digital communication for those clients. And it allows students to work beside industry professionals and produce productions. Yeah, it's an important uh, question I'm going to ask at some point is about student involvement and the hands-on experience that they get from projects like this. But Claude, tell us a little bit about your background. Thank you, Hetty. Um, And it is, it's a real uh, honor, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be in conversation with both of you. I have uh, a great deal of respect and admiration for the work you both do. So my name's Claude Taylor. I'm in my 17th year here at Monmouth. I am trained as a rhetorician in rhetoric and public communication. And so my home department is communication here at Monmouth, and I teach uh, across the curriculum as a bit of a communication generalist. I think uh, applied communication is is probably the, the kind of bucket that you would put much of the work that I do. Uh, so I teach 
introduction to communication courses. I teach uh, communication ethics, so I'm fortunate to be able to engage our students at the undergraduate level in courses in communication ethics. Um, I have had the good fortune of teaching special topics courses like communication and social class and and some other identity-related communication courses throughout the time. But my primary role at Monmouth right now is as Director for Academic Transition and Inclusion, and that's a role that's housed in academic affairs uh, and, and sort of located in the Center for Student Success, and it's in that role that I uh, sort of lead and take the the point position on our first generation student support initiatives called First to Fly, First Generation at Monmouth. Uh, but it's primarily designed, my role and the work that I do is designed as advising and academic support for all students here at Monmouth. I like to call Claude uh, Monmouth's everyman. He's, <laughs> he's everywhere on that campus and heavily involved with our students. And we have to give him Props for that, I think, is such an important uh, work. But both of you are working directly with students, which is important, I think, allowing students to have this sort of hands-on experience. So tell me both, uh, both of you, tell me a little bit about Asbury Park and your particular connection to Asbury Park, either through this project or before this project. Erin, I guess we could go back to you on this. So I, you know, I grew up in northern Ocean County and... This project was an eye-opener for me because my connection to Asbury Park stems from, I had great-grandparents who would summer in at the Berkeley Carteret every year in the, probably the 30s, 40s. My mother spent a lot of time in Asbury Park as a child. And, you know, most of the way Asbury Park was always described to me is through that lens. And it's very different from what is... Uh, the actual everyday life of people in Asbury Park. And, you know, I think a place like Asbury Park, like so many places at the shore, it's sort of a complicated city because it is a place for tourists and it's also a place for the local community. So being able to work on this project and learn about a city so close to where I grew up is was very important to me. And on my side, I... Um have talked about my connection to Asbury Park in previous episodes of the podcast and and also throughout the Paradoxical Paradise Project. So I was born and raised in Asbury Park, and so I am grateful for the opportunity to talk about the ways in which I was shaped by the city and the ways that it was has been a part of my uh, life journey and my my the evolution of my thinking about my place in the world, and so I uh, lived right in the center of all the action in Asbury Park in a particular time in history. So I, you know, I, as I've talked about before, and then that and it comes up in the film too that uh, you know my experience of Asbury Park and my time in the city is marked off by some particular historical boundaries and and so that what's happening in the world around Monmouth County and New Jersey and in this region of the country definitely informs my individual sort of personal experience of, of Asbury Park and so uh, I, and, and as we can talk about in just a bit my parents migrated to the city and so again my sort of lens on Asbury Park and my lived experience with it is is very much marked by 
migration and displacement. So I want to, so you mentioned paradoxical paradise, obviously this is part of a larger digital history project that comes out of the department of history and anthropology. And I want to know a little bit more about how you both got involved in that, that larger project, but I want to go back to Erin for one minute. Cause you, you did just recently win an award for one of your films, correct? <laughs> She's being too modest. Tell us about that. First, first of all, I, I would just like to say it's it's a production, so it is a a large crew. Um, I am at the helm, but it involves a great deal of people who I, I need to make sure that I I share the um, accolades with them. People work very hard, the students, the other professionals. But yes, we just finished a a film about the Barnegat Bay and overdevelopment and the need for clean water and in one of our largest bodies of water in the state. And, you know, again, it's another story about this confluence of uh, local communities and, and tourism and economy and environment. And, you know, so many of our shore towns have these they're very small, but they have these incredible, incredible, rich, diverse cultures working within them. And um, so I see a lot of similarities between the two projects. But yes, we did win uh, Best New Jersey Film at the Indie Street Film Festival. And we're very happy to move forward with another project and can't wait for the screening of of this one. Well, congratulations on your, your uh, excellent work. And um, thank you for for joining this project. So Paradoxical Paradise, I'll say just a little bit about that because it does involve several other professors and students, as Erin has said, uh, Professor Jeffrey Fouad, who's a GIS professor in our department, and Melissa Ziobro should definitely be given credit for the work that they've done on Paradoxical Paradise, which is a digital history project, but also a digital history and mapping project. So tell us a little bit about how both of you, uh, if you could, uh, I guess we could go back to Claude. Tell us how you became involved in um, this project that also involves oral history interviews. So I I prepared for this question, uh, Hetty, and it, it is really interesting for me to trace back my involvement in this project to the emergence of the Interdisciplinary Conference on Race that's been housed and hosted here. Uh, and Hetty, you are the the person who introduced me to the conference and got me involved early on. And it, it is, and I, I don't even remember time frame. So <laughs> my last record was 2013. And, and I think I'm sure it, it sort of had its, its, uh, you know, emergence before that, but I, I think around 2012, 2013 is when I got involved. And I, and I cite that to start because that is the place where coming out of your department and, and your historical, uh, you know, sort of contributions to classroom instruction and, but also just the practice of history on our campus really started to build the, uh, in community engagement with conversations about race at that time that the campus was, I don't know to what extent we've been, we were ready, quote unquote, ready for it, but it was, there was a strong desire among 
uh, faculty and staff and student colleagues across the campus to have those conversations, to talk about race and, and racial discrimination and a whole wide range of, of, of issues related to, um, to, the, to the experience of race on our campus and in the, air, in the region, right? And so I then move it, trace it forward to my involvement with Bad Food, which is the Black and African Diaspora Forum. Uh, that also was a place that we continued these conversations. Uh, it was the ways in which African and African-American faculty and staff and allies mobilized to move forward conversations about critical race issues uh, on our campus and in surrounding communities. And so when I was invited to participate in the digital history project, I, I suspect the first thing I did related to this project was the oral history uh, interviews that I did with, uh, there were student interviewers. So uh, Professor Zierbro invited me to just give a snapshot of my life and experience and time in Asbury Park. And so I think that's the first uh, engagement I had with the project itself. And I was thrilled to be able to sort of talk through my experience of Asbury Park. And and of course, because I grew up in the shadows of Shadowlawn, I just was one, one of the ways you could say it. I grew up in the vicinity of Monmouth. This was a really important way in my mind to, to help tell the story of the ways this university and our, our campus has, um, in varying ways, tried to connect with uh, local communities. And and so, as I've said in the past, I used Mom's campus as a, 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 a local neighbor, someone who lived in the, air, in the region. And I rode my bike here and used the library and uh, participated in sports camps here and all that sort of thing. But uh, I don't know that there was much conversation about the lives of people in these communities around our campus. And so that was a really nice opportunity to get involved there. And so the next part was the invitation from Aaron to participate in the film project. And, and I was grateful for the chance to, to do that as well. Um, and we'll talk more about my particular experience of Asbury as not a longtime resident, a person who lived there a long time, but not a multi-generational longtime resident. But it was uh, a really nice opportunity for me to talk about Asbury Park from the perspective of a person who identifies as African-American, uh, as a Black resident of the city. Yes. And I would just add that, um, you know, having Claude only in an audio setting is not acceptable because anyone who knows Claude and knows his incredible um, on-camera presence and smile, just you have to see him visually when he speaks. I appreciate that. I'm not so sure I'm ready to see me on the Pollock Theater screen, but, <laughs> but, oh, be but it, what, it will be what it will be. And I'm looking forward to that opportunity as well. I know. Um, I'm glad both of you didn't say yet. Oh, Hetty chased me down or sent me an email and said, join this project. <laughs> it's all collaborative, Hetty. When things. I see your email, it's a yes before I open it. So, you know, that's how that works. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have to. Hey, don't jinx yourself. We, you, you have you have a great track record of of asking and receiving. So I'm, I'm all about it. That sounds sounds great. No, it's definitely great to have colleagues who are willing to work together, including bringing our students into these um, 
various projects. Erin, tell us a little bit about how you uh, got involved in Paradoxical Paradise and then the film. So I'm a latecomer to the the Digital History Project, impressed with what has come before and what is going, looking forward to seeing what's going to come next. I was brought in by Dr. Foad, who has collaborated um, with me previously, both on Drift, our two-year documentary in which he created maps, and also on a, a thesis project I did in my master's program for how to educate children on geography. So he actually speaks with my dog, who is animated to talk, and it's in a studio setting. It's very entertaining. But, you know, there are a number of professors on campus who are very collaborative, who understand the need to incorporate both audio history and visuals and mapping and animation. And we have so uh, many creative, talented people on campus and these projects where everyone gets to come together and work for the greater good of the community. Um, it's it's just, it's a no-brainer and I, it's been a pleasure to be included. Yes, it's definitely one of the benefits of working on a smaller campus, sort of a small town atmosphere where you can see your colleagues on a daily basis, you know, have lunch with them and collaborate. And there's so many different projects across the university that definitely uh, we see this collaboration. So let's turn to our, our, our main subject at hand and look at this story and, um, Aaron, I like the fact that you started off by talking about your own background as a storyteller, you know, a person who tells stories. So let's go back to you and tell us a little bit of the background of the story that you uh, tell in this particular um, short film and um, who was featured in the project. We know Claude is obviously featured in the project, you know, and, and why we have, you know, certain individuals featured in the project. But tell us about this story. The overarching digital history project has a number of components to it. And when we were looking at how we were going to approach the film, we we sort of decided, both Dr. Williams and myself, that the, the, there were a lot of stories to tell. And in the time and the resources that we had at the moment, we needed to sort of narrow the scope. So in in doing that, you know, the first step for me being that I come from a different community than the one that we were going to be approaching, I needed to gain some knowledge and I needed to feel comfortable as a storyteller to be able to do, do justice to the stories that I was going to hear and then convey. So, you know, first step is going to be reach out to Dr. Williams, find out everything I need to know and and what books I need to read and, you know, get up to speed. So, um, you know that's never going to do justice to what what needs to be done but it's it's a start and it's it's a way for me to enter into the community with some understanding then once we did some pre-interviews we we sort of looked at who we might include in the film and um you know you start with a larger net and you do some pre-interviews and you know my wish list would be to you know, sort of like Isabel Wilkinson in her book, you want to interview, you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people, as many people as possible to be able to to understand what is the prevailing truth that you're trying to tell. But in this case, we, we pre-interviewed a few people, d- 
decided to narrow it down to three, one person who would be historically grounding us with, with details and data, and the other two individuals who would be able to add more of the the richer, you know, local narrative to the story. So I work with Claude Taylor. I know his 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 background. I know his um, intelligence and his knowledge of the local community. So I thought, let's start there. And Madonna Carter Jackson, who is just a wealth of information about Asbury Park. She also was another individual who, who who came to light and who had a wonderful pre-interview and I could not wait to sit down and speak with her. So we narrowed it down to those two individuals for the narrative and then uh, Graham Hodges, Dr. Graham Hodges, for the more uh, technical and data-driven information. He's written the book Black New Jersey, I think it's 1664 to present day. And... So that's where we started with those three interviews. So Asbury Park and the Great Migration. Claude, tell us a little bit about how you're featured in this uh, film and uh, your, a little bit more about your own story. I, um, I have the role of, of just telling a bit of the narrative of my family's experience of Asbury Park and then my own personal experience of the city and and I think throughout the film it is uh, wo- woven into the description of the great migration the ways in which my family and both sides of my family sort of come to Asbury Park from different different geographical locations but um, it, it it's what I and I guess I can say a little bit about what I learned in the in the film is just about the, uh, embodying diasporic African experience, right? So my mom's side of family is West Indian. So she comes to New Jersey uh, as a part of the sort of migration wave of 1965. And it's, it's that's described in the film. And my dad's side of the family is uh, rural North Carolina. And so my grandmother, so his mother, makes her way to Asbury Park as a as a kind of way station for her work uh, she's she living in you know coastal eastern shore of North Carolina like Asbury Park ends up being a, a kind of landing pad for her work as a domestic um, housekeeper and domestic in Monmouth County, but also in other parts of the Northeast. So it's a part of what, like stories I heard. And then, you know, and having her describe the ways that she worked for families up and down the Eastern seaboard. But Asbury Park was a kind of a landing pad or way station for her. Uh, and my mom's family, you know, the, what we know about, uh, the Caribbean immigration to North America. I could have easily ended up in Canada or the Midwest uh, or other parts of the Eastern seaboard because I have relatives of my mom's sisters ended up, you know, sort of landing in places across North America. So Asbury, the story you hear in the film about me and Asbury Park is my experience of, you know, being, being living there 
And and the way I've described it in, and I think I did describe it this way in the um, oral history, and it comes through a bit in the film, is that I was born and raised, so I lived in Asbury Park, was born and raised there, but I also lived very much out of the city too. And that's just because of my educational experience and having gone to parochial schools, both from, from first to 12th grade. I much of my life was sort of straddled between different parts of Monmouth County. And so I lived in Asbury Park. I grew up there. I I have all the markers and milestones in my favorite places that I talk a little bit about in the film, I think. But uh, those are all places that were strongly influential for me. But I also lived out of the city. And so I think it's a, it's a kind of double consciousness of being an Asbury Park resident, but also having like influences outside of the city, too. I would just add that, you know, the the two interviews for the, the local community was important to, to pick people from different time periods so that you could, you know, sort of color the story a little bit more than if you had just picked two people that were living there at the same, you know, marker in history. Sure, that's a good uh, lead into our next question about process. And it's probably fair to give this question to Aaron about um, we talk, and you've talked a little bit about how it starts. You know, you you think about some readings and backgrounds on the story that you want to tell. But tell us a little bit more about process, because I have, you know, had a, been working with uh, Nancy Mezzi doing some research on a film project that she's working on that looks at Black World War II veterans, and um, Sarah Burns actually came to the race conference years ago you know, the Central Park Five and her father's Ken Burns. And um, so we had conversations with her about how much does it cost to put on one of these, you know, productions and it's expensive. And I had no idea that, you know, the work of film is so expensive. So that, I mean, it's not one of our questions, but I guess it could speak to process, right? That this does, it's costly. It, it, you know, depends on, I guess, depending upon the scale, but, um, but tell us a little bit more about process overall. I, I've worked a lot with nonprofits and you can keep cost limited, but something is going to suffer because of it. So it is, you know, a professional group of people that are working. So they're going to be paid professional wages and they're in order to do production well, most people just think of the visual that they see. But what plays into the visual you see, it, it is different ranges of camera equipment, different lighting uh, systems, which might have to be used. And then, you know, there's this whole other level that often goes unnoticed, which is audio and graphics. So to do a feature-length documentary, you could have upward of 20, 30 individuals working on a production. Um, in our case, we try to mix the production with a few professionals and then as much of the student body as we can, whether that be graphic artists, camera people, editors. Oh, I didn't even speak to the editing process. So in the editing process, it's a whole other group of people. Um, there's sound editing, there's, there's animation. So it is an extremely costly process. But that being said, 
when you work with nonprofits, you do try to produce the highest level quality at the lowest price because most nonprofits don't have large budgets. It, it is a extremely time-consuming process, just as it would be to write a book. You have to do your due diligence and make sure that you research. Then you have to devise a, a game plan and what your visuals are going to be. Are you using archival footage? Are you going to create mapping? How are you going to design your interviews? Um, you have to devise interview questions. And then once everything is shot, your lighting, your audio, then you have to create your soundtrack. And editing usually takes twice as long, three times as long as the shooting process. So for example, the last feature-length documentary we worked on was shot over a year and edited over a year, year and a half. And sometimes for, for people outside of the production world, it's hard to understand. You know, everyone has a phone. How hard can it be? You just point it at something and you shoot some video and, and there you have it. But it actually, as Claude can attest, we, we conducted Claude, Claude's interview in the Asbury Park Public Library. And we had a beautiful setup with um, stain. He was sitting in front of this large stained glass window. And when I got back to the studio, we realized there was a little bit of muffled presence in the mic, which isn't acceptable. So we brought Claude in and we had him actually re-record certain sections of his interview um, that we knew would be covered with B-roll. And that, that allows you to sort of mask an issue that arose on the production end of the spectrum. But things happen. And you usually say in production, it's not if something happens, it's, it's what is going to go wrong on your production and what are you going to have to fix. So there is a, a lot that goes into the, the, the process but most people that are working in the business love it, and we love telling individual stories. And that's the other the other side of the coin is that not only do you learn more about your craft, but you end up learning more about whatever the subject matter is that you are addressing at the moment. And in this case, for the students and, and the professionals working on this, to learn about a community that is right in our own backyard that we had limited knowledge about was extremely important. Hetty, can I say something quickly about process? Sure. Um, I have seen and been sort of the audience for a good amount of the work that Aaron spearheads through production services over several years. And what I was most impressed by and and sort of mesmerized by was the educational mission of her work in production services. I um, really gained a deeper appreciation for the ways in which she orchestrates the work of students and tries to help them learn their craft, but also the embedded teaching that she facilitates in the process was um, was really important for me to see because now I can talk about that with students who are interested in getting involved uh, and participating to, to be able to say, you're going to learn how to do these things, but you're also going to get a bit of like film philosophy <laughs> and cinema philosophy here because this is, it's like a class. And I know that we 
say about the Mammoth experience that learning happens in classrooms and outside of classrooms and all across the campus. This experience with the film project was an opportunity for me to see the ways that our students learn outside of the classroom. Thank you, Claude. It's especially, that's one of our important questions is about student involvement uh, in this project on different levels. Because as you said, Claude, you were interviewed, you know, some of the history students interviewed you for the oral history piece. Erin uh, has a team of students working with her and some of the students doing research uh, as well. Justin Montana was one of our grad students who did a little bit of work in the research end of things on the, on the um, digital part, um, the website, but it's just, let's talk, let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, the role that the students played, what type of jobs that they actually have on the, on the production set, Aaron, if you would tell us a little bit more about what the students did. I'd, I'd like to start at the back end, which is student reaction and then work my way back. For me, when I'm sitting in the interview chair at the Asbury Park Library, interviewing a, a local community member. And I turn around to my student crew who is very diverse. And I see that they're, they're tearing up, that they're, they're emotional. You know, for me, that's when you know that something is happening here that's even greater than we're, we're recording someone's interview. Something else is happening. So I just want to start there because it is, it's transformative for, for some of these students. And then, you know, to talk about what they do on the technical end, the beautiful side to production services is they're not trailing a professional person who's doing the hands-on work. They're doing the hands-on work. So we spend a lot of time in the summer and, you know, right now at, at this point in the semester, training up. So I take them out. We'll shoot in nature just to, to, to get some, you know, some, the muscles working and really understand how to be quicker with the camera settings and, you know, how to address different lighting conditions. So, you know, when they're brought into an interview setting, they've done this, they've, they've set everything up in a mock setting. They have maybe done, if they're a junior or senior, they've done this for a few years now. And, when they leave Mammoth, they have a body of work that is equal to people that have already been out of school for, for two or three years in the production realm. So it, it is, it's a wonderful, wonderful program for students. No, I, I, I absolutely love uh, this project for that reason. And um, as, as you both are saying, these students are learning about process of filmmaking, but they're also learning about life, you know, and they're learning about history and all of these different uh, things just by working on this particular story. So what is the power of filmmaking? Maybe I, I could turn back to you, uh, Claude, on this. Just uh, why do you think it's, uh, why do you think film is an important tool uh, to tell stories and this story in particular? Uh, are, it's art. Right, so film is a, a a form of artistic expression. I think I'm going to just narrow my 
remarks to documentary films because I grew up a fan not knowing what to call films that I watched on PBS that were about history and about people's lives. I didn't know that they were called documentary films. I, I came to understand that. But you know that genre of film and the storytelling power of sight, sound, and mood sort of interwoven in in the in the ways that stories get told uh it's the power of transportation right it sort of transports us to places and spaces and periods of time that many of us would not have access to uh but it also to me is such an important vehicle for empathy and empathetic perspectives on the lives of others and the ways that um, people live in the world and making visible aspects of life that are in the margins and, and sort of bringing to life and reversing the kind of erasure that happens with communities and with people's experience. Like documentary films specifically to me is one of the most powerful ways to connect people with time, place, and um, and experience of others. Wow. I, I just jotted down vehicle for empathy. I, I love that phrase about documentaries, Claude. I, I would just add to that the you know, we live in a time and a place right now where short form productions are, you know, what people are consuming, TikTok and Reels and, you know, everybody's getting information in small bites. And I am such an advocate for the long form documentary because in my mind, when we talk about truth and, and whatever that is, we can only get there through doing our due diligence, through taking the time, through hearing the voices of the people in a local community, for doing the research. And that just can't always happen if we're creating things rapidly and creating things in short form. So adding to what wonderful things Claude said about documentary filmmaking, I would also say we need to really enrich and and hold on to our long form content. I think that's so well said too. I mean, I don't know what to make of TikTok because <laughs> you know, I just I don't know what to make of it. All the students know about it and they are apparently on there and my niece and nephew, they know all about it. <laughs> I don't know what to make of it. Well, I'm going to say very quickly about TikTok just because it's a chance to say this. People are uh, scholars are marking off the fact that people young people specifically are turning to it for news content and information about the world. I, and I don't see it, <laughs> but again, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time trying to wrap my mind around that, but it is, um, it seems to be a, a platform with which students, young people, uh, our students specifically, cause I've heard them say it too, Hetty, that they're, that's where they go to learn about what's going on. And, and there's a place for it if if the people who are creating the content are are doing their research and it's vetted right. and sure. but I don't know if that's always the case. So about you know back to our film directly, what do either of you know or are you 
aware of any other short or extended films about the African-American experience in Asbury Park. I absolutely do not know uh, the answer to this question. I presume that there are short films that have been done, obviously, on Asbury Park, probably focused on the music scene. But something that focuses on the, you know, the migration of African-Americans to Asbury Park and the social experience of um, Asbury Park, I, I, I have uh, would be interesting to know if either of you are aware of any other projects. So, so there, there was a recent documentary called Riot Redemption and Rock and Roll, which did touch on the issue briefly, but I would say that's also more pointed towards the cultural and music influence. On PBS Online Education, there is a, a group of videos. One is a short on the Great Migration, but it doesn't speak specifically to Asbury Park. So in my, in my research and what I've come across, I would say there's not a great deal, which would beg me to advocate for either taking this project and enriching it or doing more work in this vein. Because I think for my students and for the people who worked on the production, it wasn't enough. We want to do more. The The story wasn't completely told. There's so much more to say. There's so much more to learn. No, I, I agree with you. I want the film to finish. You know, I've watched it a couple of times now and I, I want the next segment or the, the hour or whatever comes after. Claude, you have to tell us how it ends. <laughs> <You gotta, laughs> he ends up at Mullins University. <laughs> it, it doesn't end with me moving back to Asbury Park in the, in the ways that real estate market look right now. But uh, yeah, yeah, I felt the same way. I revisited the film um, recently <clears throat> just to refresh my memory of of, of how it, it evolved with my participation in it. And I, I really think there's more to say that would fit really nicely in the narrative of that film that would bring us closer to current day Asbury Park, because there's a lot uh, that's happened socially, culturally, politically in the city since, uh, you know, really where my story kind of wraps up in the late 80s, early 90s um, is I think there's plenty of room to say a lot more about what we've seen happen over the last two or three decades. And I and I would say, just in terms of the Great Migration, for where I grew up and the stories that I knew about Asbury Park, there is so much miseducation or lack of education as to what the true history is. And, you know, just family members were asking what I was working on when I described the project. Family members who vacationed in Asbury Park said, no, but you're wrong. I never saw the black community in Asbury Park before, say, the 1970s. And that is a, a representation that exists in the minds of a lot of people in New Jersey. I mean, just the fact from the Grand Hodges um, information, you know, learning that New Jersey was a slave state, I, I cannot tell you how many people in the white community, when I speak to them, have no idea that 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 was true. So I think there's so much more history just about the Great Migration in New Jersey as a whole that needs to be explained. And, you know, I just, I've seen in communities outside of the the Asbury Park community who want to know the story. 
they they want to be educated on what the real history is. So I think that's important. No, I, I totally agree. I think there uh, we need a monograph on um, the Great Migration to New Jersey to do more work with that earlier time frame. Uh, you mentioned uh, the book by Hodges, Black New Jersey, certainly has a big um, part of that text is about migration and movement to New Jersey. Um, it just tells us entire history of New Jersey, uh, African-Americans in the history of New Jersey. So, but I think this film, because I looked in terms of just very quickly, um, Asbury Park and the Great Migration, this is the first film of its type uh, that focuses on African-Americans in the history that doesn't take a reductionist lens and focus on music. That's is that's what makes this, a, I think, a unique and a special project that it is looking at the larger uh, social experiences of African-Americans in the city. And I don't think that has been done. And um, I commend you both for, you know, putting this project together and call out your participation in this important um, project. I, I just want to thank both of you so much. And um, can we talk about changes to the city in terms of what you learn in putting the story together. But Claude, maybe you could speak to this more directly in terms of how the city has changed over time. What changes do you notice about the city? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, and to be fair, because I think I said this the uh, in the initial podcast discussion we had, um, in, in to be fair, I have not lived as a full-time resident at Asbury Park since uh, probably the early, late, late 90s. So I'm going to call it 1998. So my observation of changes in Asbury Park has been from a bit of distance. What I can say, and I, and I think I mentioned this in the film, my experience of Asbury Park was very much framed by or kind of shaped by white flight. And so I can attest to the ways in which, like, when I come on the scene in the early 1970s and as a, you know, a, a, a adolescent and grow and teenager in the city, there was a, a kind of rapid exodus of white residents on my block and throughout the city. So, I, you know, when we first, when we first moved to the single family home um, on Langford Street in Asbury Park, we had neighbors on both sides of the street uh, and, and in on that block who were our white neighbors. And within about three to five years, they uh, relocated. So they left. And, and same thing with like the business and retail, Seaview Square Mall, built was built and all the the really long-term uh businesses in town all left right and and so so what i can say about how asbury park has changed in my experience is the blight and the the disinvestment went through the late 70s into the 80s and into the 90s and so then when i start to hear people say uh, around Monmouth County that Asbury Park is back. And, you know, it comes back as a, a kind of ref, refuge for 
our artists start quote unquote starving artists and other marginalized communities, and then it starts to pick up this music scene um, um, attraction, and then brings us to the development of the last ten years. And so, all of what I see in Asbury Park is really new to me, and 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 that that development. And economic development and gentrification sort of dynamics are what I've seen from a distance, but it, uh, you know, my story picks up from the the late '90s to then. And and I would say that this discussion of development and overdevelopment in New Jersey as a whole is is we can't just isolate it to Asbury Park. It's a phenomenon that's happening in all of the 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 towns and cities, especially along the shore. Now, in terms of talking about emigration and and how people are moving today, that for me as an interviewer, I'm fascinated because I have a number of nieces and nephews who have left the state for economic reasons. So are people being pushed out because there's overdevelopment and the prices are pricing people out or are they race issues? It's something to explore and to understand more fully. No, I definitely you know, agree with you, and they certainly intersect, right? Um, race, class, and um, but it's definitely a changing city at the present as um, African Americans are uh, moving out of the city. You know, there's this migration away or out south or west of Asbury Park, uh, and um, several books, of course, have spoken to this at the. Uh, moment and new books about gentrification in Asbury Park in New Jersey, certainly several books. And we did try, we did try to explore that a little bit in the film, you know, asking, is there almost a pull to return to the South for family members? And again, I, I, I feel like we would need many more interviews to really determine whether there was a pattern or whether or not it was more of an issue of feeling like they're pushed out as opposed to pulled to, to a place. Sure. I think definitely, uh, you know, the African-American historians uh, and the reverse migration, which we refer to as the reverse migration of African-Americans returning in large numbers, you know, from the nineties on uh, to Southern states. So what is next for both of you in terms of your research, teaching, and professional work altogether? I can go first because I'm ready. Uh, it's, it's, um, I'm really excited about some of the things that uh, I'm, I'm working on starting to line up both with work here at Monmouth but also outside outside of my work at, on campus. So the first is something that's connected to where we just where we just paused. I am doing some work exploring the discourses of the reverse migration. Uh, Aaron and I had some really nice conversations uh, as we were working on this project about these moves to return to the South. And and I too, because I spent summers in North Carolina and feel like I kind of grew up there too, even though it wasn't full full time. I feel that tug towards a return to uh, nurturing spaces that the South, for many people like Charles Blow and Imani Perry and both of their more recent books about like this reverse migration and uh, the benefits and the merits of it, uh, I'm, I'm wanting to know more about how 
people are talking about it, the discourses around the reverse migration and or um, returning to the South, conceptually returning to the South. Second thing I'm working on uh, is, is some work on the black working class and higher education. So exploring some of the dynamics of educational access, but also just philosophical approaches to higher education in in is related to racial capitalism and some of the ways that these things kind of work together. And then the final thing that's kind of an outside of uh, my professional work, but is really important to me connected to the South is uh, work that I'm doing to advocate for black farmers in America and, and investing in black owned farms. I do think that black food ways are a, a really central issue related to environmental justice and to repairing the breaches in healthcare and and other ways uh that the the black experience has has been sort of uh restricted and so I'm looking to spend some more time exploring ways to help support black owned farms and black farming in America. Thank you. Wow. Aaron, what's next for you? So uh, at the moment in production services, we're training uh, some young students to be our new crew. For me personally, there's two projects that I'm, I'm passionately working on outside. One is a documentary short about English Ivy, and it's a poetic documentary, so it's mainly just visuals. And a poetic documentary is something that doesn't really take a point of view, but through the visuals, you try and convey the feeling of the subject matter to the audience. So it's sort of exper uh, experimental in a way. And then the other project that I'm in a research phase on personally is looking at racism in cemeteries on an international basis. So that's in the preliminary stages right now. Um, but I've been to a few graveyards throughout the world where there is distinct racism happening. And it's fascinating when that happens with people that have passed on, but it does. So that's something that has uh, sparked my interest. Sounds like some fascinating work coming from both of you. And I want to uh, tell all of our viewers in the uh, New Jersey area to come out and see this film, Asbury Park and the Great Migration, on October 19th from 1.15 to 2.15. You will get a chance to see Aaron and Claude in person on the uh, panel. On, on the screen, on the screen and in your audience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. Hattie, thanks so much. It's been our pleasure. Absolutely.